0: Hi, I'm Jeffrey Gordon, president of the American Birding Association and executive producer of the podcast. I'd like to say thank you for a terrific third year here at the American Birding Podcast and a wonderful 50th anniversary year at the American Birding Association. We depend on your memberships and your donations, particularly at year's end, to be able to offer you great programs like the American Birding Podcast. Please give what you can at aba.org slash give or by calling us at 800-850-2473. Thank you so much and good birding and happy new year. Hello and welcome to another episode of the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. Happy 2020. I'm your host, Nate Swick. I hope that your new year lists, should you keep one, are going well. I know my friends in the fantasy birding community were very excited for a full year of fantasy birding this year. So many people got in a little bit late last year. I know that if you have been a regular listener to this podcast for the last couple years, you'd know that this spot, the first episode of the year, is typically... Reserved for that year's Bird of the Year artist. And in fact, the last couple of years, we have also talked about the Bird of the Year in this space, but I cannot do it yet. We are revealing things a little bit differently this year. I hope you'll bear with us. We are actually having a party. And if you are a listener in the Chicago area, I know from our statistics that there are a few of you out there. You probably want to know about it. We will reveal the bird of the year, and the cover art at an event in Chicago, or yeah, Berwyn, actually, just outside of Chicago, uh, Chicago Land. It will be on the 12th of January at 1 o'clock p.m. at Wire. The artist is Tony Fitzpatrick, who is pretty well known even outside of the birding world, though he is a birder as well. It's a little bit of a coup for us. Um, and the art itself is quite different from what we've done in the past, but it is very cool, and I think that you will all like it a lot. I'm especially excited about the sticker. The sticker is really nice this year. Anyway, you can come by and you can be a part of it. Tony will be signing prints. There will be music. There will be good food and beer. If you're into that sort of thing, it is $20. If you buy your ticket early, $25 at the door. That includes the admission. That includes the music. That includes the beer from Kinschlager Brewing. You don't have to pay extra for that. Uh, There will be some optics people there too. It's going to be a really good time. With a lot of fun birders from the Chicago area and beyond, including me, I'll be there. So if that's a selling point at all, uh, you know you can get that info at aba.org/boy2020. I'll put the link in the show notes as well. So no artist on the show today. That will be next time. I'll talk to Tony. So put a pin in that. Instead, we're going to be talking hummingbirds. Southeast Arizona birding and how to save a birding hotspot. That will be with Southeastern Arizona Bird Observatory Director Sherry Williamson. She is a hummingbird colossus, which is a bit of a contradiction, but she wears it well. She talks to me after this week's rare birds. <laughs> This is your Rare Bird Focus for the end of December 2019 and the first part of January 2020. I know they say don't look back, but we have to. I'm going to go way back to talk about some of the noteworthy rarities and first records from the end of 2019. And none were bigger than this one from Washington State, where a northern giant petrel was photographed from a fishing boat in Washington waters. This is a potential first ABA area record and arguably... One of the bigger finds of the whole year, coming as it did in the last week of that year. If you're not familiar with giant petrels, uh, get comfortable. Even by seabird standards, they are pretty amazing. First, they're the size of albatrosses. Second, they are some unholy combination of petrel, vulture, and great blackback gull. They are extremely aggressive, extremely opportunistic. They kill baby penguins. They devour the carcasses of seals, and they are supposed to stay in the Southern Hemisphere. But one was seen and better yet photographed by a commercial fishing boat captain who evidently knows his birds or at least knows when he sees something weird. So there are two giant petrels, northern and southern, and while neither are expected, northern is the most expected, and some seabirders have had it on their radar, you know, maybe on the edge of their radar for a while. Uh, There's a hypothetical record from Midway Atoll from 1965. There is a somewhat more recent record of a giant petrel of unknown species in the North Atlantic uh, from France, also one from the Mediterranean, which is pretty wild. Uh, there are a few reports from the UK, none accepted still. This is all very exciting uh, to finally get this confirmed and for it to happen in such an unconventional way. Other birds of note include a first snail kite for Georgia, which is a bit overdue given that the Carolinas have had half a dozen between them now. Uh, Delaware's first living record of Western Tanager was at Bombay Hook. A Western Tanager is not super rare as a vagrant to the eastern half of the continent, There. are dozen every year but Delaware is a very small target I'm sure it's satisfying for the birders there to finally touch base with one Uh, Arkansas's first tropical kingbird was seen in Jefferson County another data point for this species which has had a mildly eruptive fall and winter in the ABA area and also Minnesota had a lesser goldfinch visiting a feeder in Polk County, one of very few records for this species in the Western Great Lakes. That is a short look at the rarity landscape for the last couple weeks. For all the rarities you can handle, check out the ABA blog every Friday morning. That is for the time being. We're actually in the process of moving blog content over to the main website, which is where the weekly rare bird alert will live. Uh, But for now, at least for this week and likely the next week. It's still gonna be at blog.aba.org, so check it out there. We'll let you know when we move it for sure. But you can still find a lot of stuff on our Facebook page, facebook.com groups slash ABA Rare and on Twitter at ABA Bird Alert. One of the biggest birding draws to Southeast Arizona are the spectacular hummingbirds uh, with species found nowhere else in the ABA area. And no one knows these hummingbirds better than my guest today, Sherry Williamson. Uh, for many, many birders, when you think of hummingbirds, you think of Sherry. She is the director of the Southeastern Arizona Bird Observatory. She is the author of the Peterson Field Guide to Hummingbirds of North America. And she's with me. Today, uh, thanks for joining me, Sherry. It's great to talk to you
1: again. Thank you so much for having me, Nate. It's an honor to be here with you. Yeah, Why hummingbirds? What is so fascinating <laughs> about them? Well, they, they are fascinating little creatures, mm-hmm. but I have to confess that I really tried very, very hard at the beginning to hold them at arm's length. Uh, when <laughs> my husband Tom Wood and I came to southeastern Arizona in 1998, it was to work for the Nature Conservancy managing Ramsey Canyon Preserve, which at the time mm-hmm. was this, you know, worldwide famous hummingbird hotspot. Yeah, um, absolutely. And uh, when we, it was one of the oddest job interviews I've ever had. Uh, They they asked us uh, one of the questions they asked us was, you know, how did we think we could reduce visitation to Ramsey Canyon Preserve, which (laughs) is odd, you know, and and certainly is uh, if it was being run just strictly as a business, it's it's certainly something Uh that would be, you know, totally out of left field. But in this case, Nature Conservancy was tasked with managing a 300 acre property for the natural values and the wildlife Mm -hmm. and the unusual species there. Uh, none of which really happened to be hummingbirds at the time but um that 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 meant that the worldwide fame that the place had um, was a bit of a liability it was too good of a birding site <laughs> yeah too good of a birding site and there were many times yeah. especially in the spring when we had an overlap between between the winter visitors to Arizona, of course, Arizona being one of the most popular places to spend the winter for a lot of people mm-hmm. and the, and then the beginnings of the birding real birding season. And uh, if a rare bird also happened to show up, that was like the perfect storm. It was a disaster. We would have, we only had 14 <laughs> parking spaces and. Yeah, yeah. I do remember that. I, I
0: visited Ramsey yeah. Canyon in the nineties uh, at, when I was at Camp Chiricahua oh, and yeah, yeah I, was, I was sort of surprising how, how small that place really was. Yeah,
1: and to cram in 30,000 visitors a year right. into that yeah. oh, very small space. And uh, the majority of those visitors were between M- March and September uh, mm-hmm. because that's really the high birding season. Ramsey Canyon Preserve is perched up in the mountain canyons at about 5,500 feet, and it's cold yeah. up there in the wintertime. And nevertheless, we would have people coming in from all all over wanting to see the hummingbirds that they had read about in yeah. this magazine or that magazine National Geographic Traveler being the the biggest offender the, the National <laughs> Geographic Traveler article yeah. that that doubled the preserve's visitation over a two year span Oh man and we were coming yeah. in on the heels of that the 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 PTSD look in the eyes of our predecessors was really terrifying <laughs> to behold in retrospect they were completely fried by having spent you know the last couple of years dealing with that massive spike in in this yeah I guess
0: I guess you don't really go into a career at the Nature Conservancy if you uh, if you love uh, you know hospitality
1: <laughs> yeah yeah and the the jobs of yeah. managing Ramsey Canyon Preserve were less Wildlife biology and more hotel motel management and right, visitor yeah. services, and there were times when it got really insane. Uh, you know, everybody wanted a piece of Ramsey Canyon Preserve from from the, the local residents who some of them just treated it like their their own personal park to the the mm. chamber of commerce and Visitor center who were interested in bringing more people to ramsey canyon preserve right. uh one guy came in and said i can double your visitation and we said no you can't <laughs> <laughs> yeah, please don't yeah <laughs> you have no idea but right. that was that was our introduction to to hummingbirds in southeastern arizona and as much as we loved other birds a lot of our our Emphasis of our work in Texas, where Tom was director of the Fort Worth Nature Center, and, and I was I recently graduated from college with a nice, shiny new biology degree, was in working with the public and the interface between people and the underdogs of nature, hawks, snakes, right. And so hummingbirds just seem to be a little too popular and a little too well-loved. So <laughs> a little too flashy, when, yeah. when our soon-to-be bosses at the Nature Conservancy during the interview asked us, how would you reduce you know, visitation? And, and, and indicated that hummingbirds had become an attractive nuisance, more or less, at the preserve. We were totally down with that at first. So we really did try very, very hard to hold hummingbirds at arm's length and you know, not become immersed in hummingbirds the way we saw a lot of other people uh, having been yeah. taken in by them. But it didn't work. Their little claws are very, very sharp, and they just dug right into our yeah. souls. And yeah, right. Yeah, there, there's uh, there. There are times when I feel like I have, I'm more hummingbird than I am human. Uh, I'm <laughs> so immersed in hummingbirds, so it it is really funny how hummingbirds are one of
0: those groups of birds that just like generates this incredible passion among people who might not necessarily be birders or, or even naturalists, you absolutely know, I'm true. You run right. into that. I
1: call them the gateway yeah. drug to nature and conservation because oh, absolutely. They, they do tend to open the door for a lot of people who never really had mm-hmm. any ideas. But there are a lot of folks that, at, at least at the beginning, they don't really relate to hummingbirds as part of nature. Tom and I were in a jewelry store here in Bisbee one time and overheard a conversa- conversation between a... a Customer and the proprietor. She wanted to know, did he have anything with hummingbirds on it? <laughs> she said, did yeah. he, "Do you have anything with hummingbirds on it or unicorns? I like unicorns too, <laughs> right. and equally I could just mythical tell creatures." From the tone of her voice, <laughs> that she didn't really draw any clear distinction between hummingbirds and unicorns. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, hummingbirds do seem awfully impossible. <laughs> they do seem awfully impossible, and that's one of the things that has has suckered in so many people from you know just average backyard. You know, gardeners and and tinkerers and all, all the way up to some of the most prominent ornithologists in North America.
0: I, you know, your, your role with the Southeastern Arizona Bird Observatory. You've you've been. Pretty influential in developing and in promoting that part of the world as a, as a birding destination.
1: Well, it was already pretty popular before we got <laughs> yeah, here, right. But-
0: right, right. But but it's neat to see all these new places kind of continue to to pop up. Uh, I imagine that's you know not the role of the observatory, but it, it must be sort of a fun side effect.
1: Well, it is. And we, we like to think that we have had a positive influence on... On the the development of of birding opportunities here in southeastern mm-hmm. Arizona, we certainly take a cue from from our colleague Jeffrey Cooper, who was manager at uh, Patagonia Sonoyta Creek Preserve for many years. When, right. when we first yeah. got there, he was uh, he was just coming on as manager of Patagonia Sonoyta Creek Preserve, and he. Uh, he was the person that convinced the Patton family, Marion and, right. and Wally, Wally Patton, that, that the people staring over their back fence with binoculars didn't mean any harm and were in fact <laughs> nice people. And of course, you know, we know the history of that, that the Patton's backyard was a major uh, birding hotspot in southeastern Arizona for many years under Wally and Marion's loving stewardship. And then yeah. now it's been by the Violet
0: by, Crown Hummingbird. Yeah.
1: It's on so, yeah, it's where most people in the U.S. and the ABA area have seen their life
0: how do you kind of broach that with uh, with people because you know southeast Arizona has a ton of private privately owned places that have become these like iconic birding spots and Patton is Patton's is certainly sort of the you know maybe Patton's the most probably famous, but, the best
1: example simply yeah. because Wally and Marion were not you know members of the birding community right, they were not right. They were not entrepreneurs. They were not, you know, running a lodging operation or anything like that, or a guiding business or anything like that. There are a lot of feeding stations in southeastern Arizona that are open to the public, the, but it's because the 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 owners of the properties are are immersed in the birding community, right, and right. in some cases, it's because they they see it as an opportunity to uh, to build their business, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and that's fine. You know, I'm perfectly okay with that. I think that's a wonderful thing. In fact, because it does expand our opportunities sure so we have you know places like cave creek ranch and uh, and uh, uh the uh, southwestern research station yeah. and dave jasper's yard in portal Bobbert mm-hmm. biggest's yard just outside portal uh places like that uh, san Rita lodge those are all places that that uh, have already had connections to the birding community and have just to simply um uh, decided that uh, um, offering hospitality above and beyond their main business, whatever that might be, is is a, a good thing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, that was that was this, this has been the story with a lot of places that uh, one of the originators of the hospitality in southeastern Arizona uh, was Sally Spofford, who was a retired ornithologist. Right. Yeah. And, her, and her husband, Walter, were were among the very first people to open their yard to the general public throughout yeah. the welcome match. That was right in Portal, right? That was yeah, right in Portal, just right yeah. at the edge of town. You could I remember see, that. Yeah. see the post office building from their yeah, place. Exactly. I
0: think I got I think I got Lucifer Hummingbird in their yard. Yeah,
1: she and yes, and she <laughs> had lots of wonderful hummingbirds yeah. in her yard as well as lots of other wonderful things as well. She was in that that sweet spot where actually where Ash Canyon Bird Sanctuary is, mm-hmm. in that sweet spot where the intersection between the lower elevation habitats and the higher elevation habitats. So, you know, she had. Uh, lower elevation birds like you know Kirk, bill and crystal thrashers in her yard, but she also had higher elevation birds like blue throated mountain gem and and occasionally white eared hummingbird and mm-hmm. and she she really uh, had um, a wonderful spread laid out for the birds and because she was an ornithologist and had the birds welfare uh, as her first priority. She laid out a good spread, a healthy spread for the birds and did try to, to be as good as possible a host for the birds as well as for the birders. Mm-hmm. When she passed away, well, her husband predeceased her when she passed away, and we discovered much to our chagrin that there had been no provisions made for her property to remain exactly. open to the public. As as she had said that she she had planned that, that she had worked that into her will, hmm. our sense is that perhaps the provisions of her will might not have been entirely honored by her Her heir, but we don't know that for sure. All we know is that that her her heir named in the will is is taking the property. um, Yanked in the will to welcome Matt took down the feeders, and that was the end of of access to Sally's property. At that time, though, many of us vowed that we were not going to let that happen again.
0: Exactly, yeah, which is sort of what happened with the patents. When the patents passed away, that was a pretty, that's a pretty amazing story.
1: Massive, massive effort. But fortunately, you know, pulling together the resources of the Tucson Audubon Society, which is, you know, a big and very active chapter here in Arizona and the American Bird Conservancy and Victor Emmanuel Nature Tours, they were able to marshal sufficient resources to purchase the property outright and have done just, I think, a fantastic job there in in taking it well beyond what... uh, uh, Wally and Marion were able to do with their property during their lifetime, taking it above and beyond and really showcasing it as what, uh, uh, how much habitat you can cram into a small property. Yeah. Not just the feed, but real habitat for the birds. Yeah. It doesn't hurt that they're next to the patagonia Sonority Creek. <laughs> yeah, <stuff. laughs>
0: I was going to say, like how much of the area around there is protected? But yeah, I do recall it being like well, Claude, right there. A lot there. of it between, yeah.
1: between the the Nature Conservancy Preserve, Wally and Marion's property and uh, adjacent property there. And uh, and then, you know, uh, uh, further away, we've got the Patagonia uh, Lake State Park and the mm-hmm. Sonority Creek Natural Area, which are managed by the state. So yeah, uh, people, uh, you know, this is an area that's that has long been recognized for its environmental value Use that uh, way back to the to the 1960s when Patagonia Sonority Creek Preserve was first established mm-hmm. as the very first nature conservancy preserve in Arizona. Yeah. A lot of that has to do with the the writings of Joseph Wood Crouch, who was one of the great naturalists of the Southwest, and not as well known a name as Edward Abbey or John Muir or any of those guys. But Joseph Wood Crouch was uh, his writings and, and his activism were certainly instrumental in getting Sonora Creek, the watershed there, recognized for its its uh, very special value values uh, to to wildlife and biodiversity.
0: Yeah, it, it's amazing because those places like patents can sort of become uh, like a showcase area. And that way you don't necessarily need people to be like, you know, hiking back into some of these areas. You can you can pr- yeah. protect some of the, the nature conservancy land and yeah, to, you know, the retain the, the patents. Yeah, the exactly, people. right, right, right. And and so I do want to talk about, you know, Mary Joe's place at Ash Canyon, which mm-hmm. was recently preserved as well, um, and, and southeastern Arizona Bird Observatory played a big role with that. Uh, so, what what was the story with that?
1: Well, Mary Jo had been in off and on poor health, declining health for a number of years, and mm-hmm. and we all, I think, were just her friends were all just kind of in denial about it. Mm-hmm. She. Uh, back in in uh, April, or early May, last time I visited with her at her place, uh, she was excited about going in for surgery to fuse some neck vertebrae that were giving her an awful lot of pain and making mm-hmm. it hard for her to keep her feeders clean and filled, hard right. for her to yeah. enter her garden.
0: And she had a beautiful garden and feeding and she area did too. They had this amazing tree with like the hummingbird feeders hanging on it, and all the people yeah. sitting around it. It was just a really like yeah. perfect setup. <laughs>
1: But she had been in such pain uh, mm-hmm. with her, you know, various ailments. In in this case, the the arthritis in her neck and the uh, deteriorating vertebrae in her neck, that she wasn't able to do all the bending and lifting and everything right. necessary for yeah. care of her, garden. her garden. Yeah, it's a starting to decline, and I know it was very painful for her to see that. And she just she never came out of the hospital. She well, she did, but she went directly into hospice. She had a, a major event um, following surgery. Uh, it, she she never recovered, and of course that was devastating for us all to hear. Uh, she was a, a much beloved figure in in southeastern Arizona. Her her hospitality is is really just legendary. She mm-hmm. she was was obviously so kind and caring to the birds, but uh, also also her hospitality to the birding community. How many thousands of people over the many years, over like sixteen <sighs> years that her yard was open to the public. How many people she had hosted at her place? So how did that become
0: a birding hotspot? Was it a, a particular bird that showed up there, and then
1: her signature bird was the the for, that, that got the ball rolling anyway was a plain capped starthroat. Right. Now if she hadn't had regular visits by plain capped starthroats. It's not like her place became the one best place to see plain capped mm-hmm. starthroats in in the U.S. But a plain capped starthroat that. Uh, uh, had actually been visiting the Beatty's place, left the Beatty's place, and came down to her place.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That was right before the Southwest Wings Birding Festival in early oh, August. Right. Perfect. He to set up it. a field trip for people to come just on the field trip to come see mm-hmm. the Cap star Throat, which uh, many people were very thrilled with and at that point she and her then her soon to be ex-husband were um, uh, working to set up a very very small guest operation to help support them and they had built a little straw bale casita their their main house was straw bale a uh-huh. beautiful building and they built a little straw bale casita to match for their for guests and so the next spring she opened up her casita her husband had split by this time. She opened up her casita uh, as a as a lodging business, and also threw out the welcome mat. In, yeah. You know, carrying on that long tradition of hospitality sure. started by folks like Sally Spofford. She threw out the welcome mat to birders. And her yard became the place in the u s to see Lucifer hummingbirds,
0: yeah, oh she, yeah
1: oddly enough, even as rare as they are around southeastern Arizona, yeah. for some reason, that little uh, area, big open, sunny canyon in mm-hmm. in the foothills of the Wachuca Mountains seems to be just an ideal place for Lucifer hummingbirds. Even though there are many more loose for hummingbirds in Western Texas, they're just mm-hmm. easier to see in southeastern right. Arizona yeah. because you, know. you don't just get invited randomly into somebody's yard in Texas. <laughs> <Right>. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: So after Mary Jo passed, what 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 started happening to protect this place?
1: Well, it was particularly awkward because she passed uh, on the twenty fifth of May. And both her her very best friend, uh, Tony Batiste, a Batiste bed and breakfast nearby, in the, uh, also in the foothills of the Huachucas, and Tom and I were out of town oh. for the next couple of weeks. And so there was really nothing that we could do on the ground. Mm-hmm. And so uh, fortunately, Tony uh, asked an, another uh, a local, another neighbor, Rob Gallucci, uh, who lives nearby, if, if he could take over and start, you know, kind of r- rally some volunteers, mm-hmm. start uh, keeping the feeders clean and full, right. with the permission of the family, of course. We got permission from from Mary Jo's family, her heirs, mm-hmm. her son and daughter. Uh, and so uh, uh, Rob came in and started organizing the volunteers. And uh, Rob also organized a GoFundMe Effort uh, uh, again. He got very ambitious and decided that uh, that perhaps it, uh, they'd be able to to raise the purchase price of the mm-hmm. property and maybe be able to purchase the place. That, wow. that didn't pan out. Although he did end up raising more than twenty thousand wow. uh, dollars over the next few months. Uh, but what what happened there is that um, uh, Tony Batiste had a uh, uh, some family connections to a couple uh, in California. Uh, Dr. Mario Molina and and his wife, Therese Flynn Molina, they had a a charitable fund set up uh, that they use to support good causes. Mm -hmm. And Tony contacted them and said, I've got a good cause that that I hope you'll consider supporting. Yeah. And the next thing we know, just out of the blue, Tom and I got a call from from Dr. Molina, wanting to know more about Sabo, wanting to know, you know, the history of the organization and our philosophy and what we might do if we were to become the stewards of, of Mary Jo's right. Corner of Paradise. So we had a nice chat with Dr. Molina. We wrote up a, a proposal with background about the organization, background mm-hmm. about us and our, our experiences at Ramsey Canyon Preserve. And uh, basically, as I expressed to Dr. Molina, the There's really not anybody in southeastern Arizona better equipped uh, to to understand the challenges of running a place like Ash Canyon Bird Sanctuary and to to actually get it done. Yeah. And wonder of wonders. It was like, you know, you know, one of those giant checks dropped out of heaven. (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) I really feel like we should have had like a four foot long check because because the the Molinas uh, approved the donation and allowed us to buy the property free and clear. Oh, wow. So we could then put all of the resources, which started coming in very, very quickly after we announced Mm it. We started getting donations from far and wide. Uh, Many, many folks uh, have contributed and their uh, donations are going to go into the the upkeep, maintenance and, and rehabilitation of the place.
0: It's amazing how, you know, like patents, this place can now become... Like better than it was before, right? Yes,
1: yeah, exactly. Mary Jo had dreams for her property. One of the things that we received mm-hmm. as part of her effects that were gifted to us was a map showing a trail that she had oh, long wow. planned to go up into the backside of the property where really nobody ever went. Even Mary Jo didn't go there very often. Oh, that's amazing! And we're looking at taking that map and and mapping out that trail and getting a volunteer crew in there to build the trail that Mary Jo wanted. Huh. And, of course, we're, we're also trying to honor her her passion for plants and keep the gardens going, make the gardens even better. Mm-hmm. We, uh, through um, connections of one of our, our new board members, Kirk Stitt, um, he and his wife, Linda, are very involved with the Service to Area Gardeners Club. And they organized a group of volunteers from the Gardeners Club to come out and help us rehabilitate the flower bed oh, really cool. where the, the Lucifer hummingbirds especially yeah. like to come.
0: So this place almost becomes like a playground for (laughs) naturalists all over (laughs) Southeast Arizona.
1: Well, yes, we are definitely, we're definitely moving on toward developing more resources for pollination gardening, adding more native plants so that we can show any, any visitors from the local area, what kinds of things they can plant in their own yards Mm -hmm. to help encourage local wildlife. That's so important. We can plant all kinds of plants, but unless we're planting natives, a majority of, of native plants. Uh, We're not providing resources for the food chain from the bottom up. And of course, our bird visitors need, they need, they need fruits and seeds. They need insects. Those insects depend on native plants. A lot of non-native plants are not palatable to our native insects. And so we're going to be upping the the value of the property to native wildlife by removing a lot of the non-native plants. I spent hours and hours and hours during the first few weeks, uh, that we were working on the property, just digging out Hmm. the non-native grasses and weeds that had, had started to take over a lot of Mary Jo's beautiful pollinator garden. Oh, that's really great.
0: So I I also noticed, to to kind of change the subject, that you're also working on an update for your your field guide to Hummingbirds in North America, which came out,
1: um, was it 10 years ago? Let's not not talk too much about about that, because I've been working (laughs) on it way longer than my editor would like me to be working on it. Sure. But it is going to be a major update, and one of the things. I was going to ask, like, what, I what has certainly changed? My editor and anybody else who's who's been anxiously waiting for this uh, update to come out is that there have been uh, some major changes in yeah. hummingbird taxonomy, in hummingbird nomenclature. The, the common and scientific names are changing for mm-hmm, some species. Sure. So a lot of those things the, that if I had finished it on my very first deadline that I gave my editor they wouldn't have been incorporated and yeah, very yeah, yeah. quickly it would have become outdated even before the ink was yeah. dry on the
0: Yeah, work so in progress I'm everything is. <laughs> some
1: of the things coming down the pike uh, yeah. there's so much you know the DNA uh, analysis that's being done by a number of teams around the world really. Mm-hmm. Uh, is really bringing into much, much clearer focus the relationships between hummingbird species and hummingbird genera. And we're starting to get a much more detailed picture of just how wrong we've been yeah,
0: <laughs> about I a bet. lot, of, a the lot of hummingbird
1: relationships.
0: So. Yeah. So, I mean, you came in to your sort of career in Southeast Arizona as sort kind of holding hummingbirds at arm's length. Uh, yeah. Do you think you've sort of accepted your role as sort of the – the hummingbird resource for North America, the hummingbird person, I guess at a certain point you just kind of have to fall into it and accept it.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, you know, it it, it pains me sometimes when I see other folks trying to fill that role and (laughs) and – not succeeding, but I, you know, I have to admit that I have been extremely privileged. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that has been deeply informative for me in understanding the identification issue, issues, which is white people by field guides, mm-hmm. all that stuff up front, nobody ever reads that stuff. It's they want the hard, <laughs> yeah, I know, right? You, I'm not even sure anybody reads the species accounts, so they just read the I, plates.
0: I know, and I, as someone that out <laughs> wrote a field guide, like, you know, you put a lot of work into those up front things and that people yeah, very do. infrequently look at. <laughs>
1: There's a lot you of know, good. information there (laughs) yeah but the but you know we still put the love into that that, those first parts don't we absolutely Uh, but the the, one of the things that has been a tremendous privilege for me that has has really informed my understanding and and continues to inform my understanding of the id issues is being a hummingbird bander and having Mm -hmm. those birds in hand and being able to see the minute details that That, you know, now I know what to look for. Somebody sends me a picture and they want to know, is this a ruby-throated or a Mm black-chand? If I can see those wings, I know what I'm looking for. Exactly. And we're still discovering field marks. Back in, was it 2016, I guess, I had a bird visit our yard that I was out puttering around in the garden. This was in, I think, October. And I was out puttering around in the garden. And I heard this call note that was really weird. It sounded like a cross between a black-chinned and an anus mm-hmm. call note in the the, the the quality and timbre of the of the sound. And indeed, that's what the bird turned out to be. Oh, wow. It was a hybrid female, black-chinned ex-anus.
0: That's crazy because you don't really think of those. Yeah, you know, the those, I guess, the what is it? Calypti is uh, anus and Archilicus yeah, is. The, and uh, yeah, and Archilochus really, is. And yeah, you are
1: not even, when you look at the current uh, family tree that's yeah, been built. That based yeah, not that close. Yeah all that closely related right and and, but and yet they they do produce hybrids and those hybrids may even be fertile and be capable at at least in theory of producing second generation that's nuts Uh, but the this bird as i was as i was you know intentionally scrutinizing the images that i gotten of this bird and comparing it with similar images of anna's and black Mm -hmm. something hit me like a ton of bricks i noticed a new field mark for Mm -hmm. anna's hummingbird they have unusually short greater secondary coverts. These are feathers so tiny nobody would give them a second look. <laughs> right. Ordinarily. And I'm embarrassed that, you know, over 30 years I had been just not noticing what was going on with with their with their greater secondary coverts. Mm-hmm. There there was something in my mind that I, I there that the, the folded wing of an Anna's hummingbird always looked somehow incomplete. Oh, but I right. was handling yeah. so many of them during the molt season, during the late summer and early fall molt season for Anna's, uh-huh. which is not molt season for a lot of other hummingbirds, but it is for Anna's. That I think I think my brain was compensating and just just you know subconsciously saying it's just molt; those feathers aren't fully right. grown out. That's why the wing looks. This
0: is out. actually it's something. Completely- physiological. It's actually
1: actually the morphology of those feathers. They never get very long and they are, they're oddly, they're not only short, but they're also very angular in shape. The inner ones are square at the tip and the outer ones are angled at the tip, Hmm. like a little wedge. And this was a completely new field mark. I scoured all the literature going all the way back to the 1800s when, you know, there, there were a lot of scientists who were obsessing over every feather tract on on the birds that they were describing, I could not find any references huh. to it. The closest I I have ever found, even in illustrations, oddly enough, was Audubon. Huh. Audubon in his his lithograph of Anna's hummingbird, he shows the the greater secondary coverts being on the short side. He they're not quite detailed enough to really uh, to really show the, the 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 full morphology of those feathers. But but Audubon, oddly enough, for all of <laughs> of Audubon's well, he certainly had it in the hand. He yes, he certainly <laughs> had him in hand. That's absolutely true. Yeah. But he it shows how faithful yeah. he was to the real bird. Yeah. Whereas that's true. generations yeah. of illustrators since Audubon have compensated, like my brain did, compensated for those yeah. unusually short greater secondary coverts by drawing them out as though they were the same length as every other hummingbird's. Greater secondary coverts. Oh, wow. I mean, oh. this is unique to Anna's. Yeah. Even Costas hummingbirds, their closest relatives with whom they interbreed really freely, yeah. even Costas hummingbirds do not have these short, angular greater secondary coverts. Huh.
0: You're going to send me off to look at some uh, <laughs> photographs of Anna's hummingbird on eBird.
1: <laughs> oh, believe me. I'm going to go right, an awful right after we're finished. Talking on here. Yeah, right.
0: You. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Photo. Well, uh, yeah. Well, yeah, um, well, I, I got a ton of good stuff here. I'm going to go ahead and wrap yeah. this up if that's okay. Sure. All right, cool. Well, congratulations and all that, and the and the amazing work, you know, saving Mary Joe's place for birders. I, I uh, Sherry take Williamson much credit is, for
1: it, but we are going to try to honor the responsibility that has been. Laid
0: upon that's all us you can do, right?
1: As best we can, we yeah. have a duty to Mary Joe, to her, uh, the memory of our dear friend, but also to the birding community and the birds.
0: Sherry Williamson is the uh, is with Southeastern Arizona Bird Observatory. She's the author of the Field Guide to Hummingbirds of North America by Peterson. Uh, thanks so much for talking Thank to me. Thank you
1: so much for having me, Nate. It's a privilege to be here.
0: The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. We are a membership organization. Why not make a New Year's resolution to support birds and birding by joining the ABA? We'd love to have you as a member. You get a year's worth of magazines, discounts to some of our partners, and the knowledge that you are helping to build a better birding community in the U.S., Canada, and beyond. Get more information at aba.org join or check out our e-memberships at aba.org e-member. I want to make a special shout out to, and hold on here, there are a bunch. Maureen Traxler of Shoreline, Washington, John Bryan of Longmont, Colorado, Laura Wolf of Ellicott City, Maryland, Jordan Chazen of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Solon Gordon of New York, New York, Chai Shun Kwong of Arlington, Virginia, Catherine Rosbach of Magnolia, New Jersey, Michelle Randecker of Marble Hill, Missouri, Christopher McPherson of Brookline, New Hampshire, Emily Larson of North Bend, Washington, Rachel Murray of Armed Forces Europe, Benjamin Romney of Burley, Idaho, Tracy Hinchbach, of Escondido, California, Matt Betts from Detroit, Michigan, hold on, (laughs) Teresa Worrell of Baltimore, Maryland, Curtis Brown of Phoenix, Arizona, Alexei Saunders of Aurora, Colorado, Steve Rogers of Portland, Oregon, Christina Crumbless of Brookfield City, Wisconsin, Karen Brereton of London, Utah, and Ashley Hopkins of Fullerton, California, all of you joined the ABA in the last month and noted the podcast as a reason. Thank you so much. Welcome or welcome back to the ABA. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. His New Year's resolution for the birding community is fewer stringers, more sharing, and an increase in coverage of those container ships from Asia with the rare birds perched on them. Technical production is by John Lowry. His New Year's resolution is to finally perfect that Subaru hacking technology they have in Michigan. It's good, but think of all the birds we're missing because it's not good enough. Additional help comes from David Hartley and Greg Neese. Their New Year's resolutions finally releasing those studies that show all the large white-headed gulls are actually the same species to be called seagull. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com birders, and on Twitter at ABA. As a community, our New Year's resolution should be to build a better and more inclusive birding community that incorporates the many ways in which people find meaning in the hobby of birding. But let's be honest, we're going to find a way to wirelessly inhibit the devices of people who blast playback too much. Some sort of constructive interference, sound wave canceling technology, anti phase waves. You know, it'll probably be worse than actual playback. But dream big, people. Questions, comments can come to me at podcastaba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Hope to see some of you in Chicago this weekend. Till next time.